0: This is Jack Spirko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't, today is Thursday, February the twenty ninth, two thousand twenty four, and this is episode three thousand four hundred and fifty six of the Survival Podcast, and it is, of course, an expert council Q and A show this week, which means there'll be no live stream video in it, and I'm. Not even going to do my segment that way today. I have a pretty straightforward one. And while it would be a great video, it will be a video at some point when I'm actually filling a garden bed. So that will tell you probably what it is all about before I even get there. But what do we got today? We got the Ron Paul Liberty highlights. Dr. Paul and Chris Rossini talk about how the open border is an absolute disaster for America. And next week we will be out without Dr. Paul for a segment because Chris Rossini, who puts the segments together for us, is going on a well-deserved vacation. But he'll team up with Dr. Paul today to talk about this issue. And I completely agree. And I'm going to throw a little bit of my, but Jack, you're supposed to be a libertarian or an anarchist into this with, yes, I am. It's exactly what I am, an anarchist. I, I really believe that we shouldn't have all of this bullshit, but we do. And if I have to live with it, then I have to live within the confines of what has been set up that I have to live with. So I have my principles, I have my preferences, and I have a balance between the two in a world where my principles are overridden by somebody else's preferences. So we'll talk about that. Because I always get shit about this topic. You're supposed to be for open borders. Well, let's run an anarcho-society, and then I will be. Next up, Tim Toolman Cook. We'll talk about when you might want to use something called a soft start for some specific applications. Uh, Dog Bones will talk about ear care using something called Dakin's Solution. D-A-K-I-N apostrophe is possessive S. Uh, This goes all the way back to World War I, and I didn't know anything about this. And I think this goes way beyond the question about using it for ear problems. Way beyond. I think this is a great thing to know how to do. Bones will break it down for you. How about charging your battery banks? Sean Mills will talk about that in kind of a specific application, but I think it'll be good for anybody worried about this. Nicole, awesome sauce, will answer a very complex question, at least parts of it, on setting up a private school and avoiding interference from the government. I'll try to tag-team that a little bit. Patrick Rohrman will talk about a very, very sad Uh, Subject he really didn't want to talk about, but he felt compelled, almost mission-oriented to talk about it. It is an article that was sent to him about a young man who was wearing a neck knife and ended up dying. He had a fatality accident because of a knife hanging around his neck. And this is something I've always been concerned about, and it's why I'm pretty... I don't recommend buying neck knives from many places or people, Patrick being one of them, because I know how he builds his sheaths, and uh, this is something really important to listen to and understand. Eric Hammond, one of our newer expert council members, will talk about the care, maintenance, terminology, and repair of tires. And I just realized I wrote in there, tired, maybe cause I'm uh, maybe because I'm tired, I had the... The grandkids, we let them spend the night last night. So we we went to bed later than old people usually go to bed. And we had more effort involved in doing so. Uh, But we're going to talk about tires. And you know, remember, my old man ran a tire shop for like 15 years. Uh, I did a lot of work for him. It takes something to teach me something about tires. And I'm going to say, I learned a thing or two in Eric's segment. So if I learned a thing or two, I think most people will learn quite a few things about tires, and some stuff you really need to know to prevent you from making bad decisions or being talked into doing stupid things by people who make money off of your lack of knowledge. We call those people salespeople. Some of them are really great. Some of our salespeople is a consultant. That's how I always tried to operate it as a salesperson. But there are many of them, they just follow their training, and they don't really know anything other than follow my training. They don't even know what they're saying. They've just memorized words, and sometimes that can lead you to spending lots of money you never needed to spend. And I have a little... I'll have a little kicker on this one, too. And then I'm going to talk to you about, yep, you probably guessed it for my intro, building and making fill for raised garden beds, because I've been recommending all of these great metal garden beds. You put them together, fill them up, and grow. You know, when you start looking at, like, if you're going to go to Home Depot or Lowe's and start buying bags of very expensive soils and dumping it in there, and you start to realize, hey, a 4x8 bed that's 2 feet deep that's a yard. That's a cubic yard of materials, like .97 of a cubic yard. Then you go, hey, wait a minute, wait a minute, it's really expensive. That's cost a lot of money. I'll never get my money back. You should think that way. Good on you for thinking that way. Because you, you don't put more energy and cost into a thing than it will produce out for you. That is a negative ROI. So we'll talk about how we can do that. And I'm going to give you a couple different ways, depending on how long you are willing for it to wait for it to be all the way full. Anyway, uh, and I'll tell you how to get it done for very little to almost no money and sometimes maybe no money at all. Sometimes maybe a six-pack of beer or two. All right, with that, before we get started, let me go ahead and remind you guys that you can help us out by doing your online shopping starting at tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. Up until very recently, just about everything there, when you clicked on the link uh, in an article, a write-up explanation of a product would take you to Amazon.com. And I have recently inked a deal with Vivor, V-E-V-O-R, Vevor.com. And so now I have most of the stuff still goes to Amazon, but I am slowly building out a Vivor catalog as well. Uh, they've been a great company to work with so far. And the lead product that I've been bringing out with them is from a product that is a, a raised garden bed made out of galvanized metal. And I have put the one that they sent me together. It is huge. I really want to get a video out for you. It's been cold the last two days. And the last nice day we had for video work, uh, I had to do an awful lot of bullshit work because some assholes were using my website to test stolen credit cards. And there was like a gajillion $5 charges uh, against stolen cards. And it took me several hours to fix it and to make sure it would not happen again. I won't get into exactly what they were doing because that might sound confusing. But basically, if you steal a whole bunch of credit card information from a whole bunch of different people all at once, like a honeypot, you need to test the cards to see which ones work that haven't been reported stolen or anything, have some credit left on them. So you find a place that's very low cost. I'm really giving you more info. I thought this would be a good thing to know. A lot of you guys run websites. And so, like, my $5 membership, they were just using each card with automation, and charging $5, and then the cards that worked, they were then going, you know, most likely sell those cards. That's what they do, is they sell the information on the dark web, right? Um, So that was going on, so I had to go through and individually cancel and refund all those charges. It could have cost me thousands, and I mean thousands of dollars in fees, if the, uh, the owner of those cards, once they figured out what was going on, reported them stolen, uh, then it would come back to me, and every five dollar thing would also cost me like a thirty five dollar chargeback. So not only would the five bucks go back to the person that it deserves to go back to, obviously, but the uh, thirty five dollars would come out of my ass. So it was no fun. So anyway, I didn't get the video done, but we've got these uh, these beds from before now. They're just awesome, and you should really check the write up on them. And again, just you know, thinking your head two feet tall—that's you know up over your knees usually. And four foot by eight foot, these are big beds. But they also make them in a 12-inch deep bed, which for many of you will be a better choice. And when I get to my fill question, you'll see why. It'll cost you less money to fill them up. And if you're not sitting on you know three or four inches of soil sitting on top of rock, then you got lots of dirt to go down into. Uh, but I have something new for you guys today. So I'm just learning how to work with Vivor as an affiliate. Now if you go to T-Spaz, not only can you just link over to Amazon and buy whatever you want, you can link over to Vivor and buy anything that you want. But I want to caution you with something. Again, the brand of the Survival Podcast is Integrity. It's always been Integrity. It will always be Integrity. And that means full disclosure. And not just, hey, they gave me this product for free that I reviewed. Because that will happen, but it will not happen as much as you think. Because Vivor and their program for influencers like me... They only have at any given time like a dozen products, and if I don't think it's a product that I can sell well for them, I won't take it for free, and I won't ask you to buy it if I don't think it's a good recommendation for this audience. So if it's something like one of the things I have right now is like a commercial shawarma maker or something like that's not going to sell well, and I really don't think you should buy it because I said so, right? But if you just want to buy anything on favor, you go to tspaz.com now. Instead of just being able to link over to Amazon, you can link straight to the main favor website – You can use the discount code I have, get 5% off anything there, on top of the great pricing that we already have through the program. Uh, So that's good to know. But you should also know this. Vivor makes some really good things. They also make some things that I will not recommend to you. Um, I was looking at, for instance, incubators today, and after reading up on uh, reviews of them i right now nothing that they sell as an incubator for birds their reptile ones ironically are wonderful, but they 're one they have three different ones for like incubating chicken eggs i wouldn 't recommend any of them they 're very affordable, but you 're better off buying a better one so i 'm going to continue what I always do just because i 'm working with Vivor. Doesn't mean I'll be like, just buy everything. I am going to individually go through, review, research, and hand-curate items for you. But that said, you guys can find things on there that are great. This is what I would recommend. Almost everything they sell direct, they also sell on Amazon. And if you want to do your own research, you can look at the Amazon reviews. And then you can decide where do you want to buy from Amazon or you want to buy direct. And I would make that decision on pricing, honestly. And almost, in fact, I would say 100% so far. Every time I've tested that, it's been less expensive for you to go through my program, uh, especially when you include the discount, the 5% additional discount. Anyway, longer on the intro than I planned, but I just wanted you guys to be informed of this new program. You'll see more of it coming out. And When I say these guys have everything, I mean you know, automotive tools, um, extensive uh, a lo- a line of stuff in agriculture and lawn and garden and all kinds of stuff that you guys do all the time. Hand tools, power tools, etc. They they have an incredible breadth of product. I'll be bringing you more and more. But enough of that for now. Let's go on and hear from the Ron Paul Liberty Highlights about the open border and how it is indeed a disaster for America.
1: Yes, Dr. Paul, uh, here's a chart our studio engineer will put up that we came across. It's very striking, and uh, it shows since Biden took office, the number of illegals that are crossing into the country you can contrast it with uh, the period before when president trump was there and uh yeah this this seems deliberate because i we found a quote from 2015 well before he was president where biden he told us his thoughts he said quote and the wave still continues it's not going to stop nor should we want it to stop as a matter of fact it's one of the things i think we can be most proud of end quote. So it's no surprise that uh, this is what Biden has done. And, uh, you know, my personal opinion is when immigration happens like this, it creates big problems because human beings are not the same. And you'll think you'll hear people all yes, yes, we are all the same. Yes, we do have two eyes and two ears and legs and arms. And in America, we should be the, treated the same under the law. We know that's not true. Unfortunately, there are plenty of people who are above the law, way above the law in america the people should all be treated the same under the law but you know there's a lot more to being a human being than just the law around the world there are different uh, in all the different nations they have different beliefs different uh, beliefs on government different cultures what do they think about freedom their social habits their religious beliefs how to raise children so in each nation you know there's a common set of beliefs even here when i go out my door today i am not going to be surprised by what happens you know there is a common understanding culture on what happens here and when we go to another country if i were to go to japan i'd have to adapt i'm not in america anymore this is how it's done in japan this is what the people here think and believe and this is what they believe about their government and i would have to adapt uh... so everybody is different in that sense And, uh, you know, but the left are so childish. Oh, you don't like people with different color skin. It has nothing to do with that. You know, think of on a very micro uh, scale. Like if my aunts or my uncles or my cousins, people that I love, were to move into my house, forcefully move into my house, there would be conflict. They live differently than I do. What they do at 8 o'clock may be different than what I do. They may eat at different times. And we would come into a lot of conflicts. Now, these are people that I love. I don't want them invading my space. So it has nothing to do with skin color. But, you know, people need to acclimate to where they go. And when people just flood in like this, there is going to be conflict. We're already seeing the conflict. It's all over social media. People talk about this all the time. My friends, my family, they're all talking about... What is going on with our country and that border? And this is nothing that Biden should be proud of
2: all along since i've been in politics i've always taken a position that you know uh, most americans have a a pretty broad-minded position on it because so many of us have relatives that came here you know by immigrants and certainly our family did that but uh so you don't want to say no no more immigrants you know we have to close the doors because we are a large nation and a prosperous nation but for some reason uh, it, it's out totally out of control. And uh, I think that that is what the, the American people are upset about. They're they're up, upset because they uh, they they seem to be overrun. I, I think the word is invasion. You know, uh, oh, what do you mean invasion? They don't have any guns, but they don't have to. Our guards just laid their guns down and said, come on in we have no rules we do whatever you want it will pay your way we will provide home even if we have to take it from hard-working American so they, they did that and I'm convinced anytime you subsidize something make it easy to become a citizen or bribe them to become a citizen you're going to get a heck of a lot more of it and it's been at the expense of the American people
1: and while you know we've never had a perfect government and we never will uh it surely was better when it came to immigration both both sides of my family came from other countries and it was tough to get in here they had to have sponsors they had to have jobs you know somebody had to account for them no one else was going to pick up the bill for them so yeah he's staying with me he's working for me his family's coming they're all taken care of now we have you know our great society from LBJ massive massive welfare state perhaps the biggest in the entire world and now the taxpayer just picks up the bills dr. Paul and Daniel did a show yesterday we're in New York City they're handing out $10,000 refillable debit cards so they're bringing all these people in and sticking us with the bill I mean this is the craziest thing one could ever imagine but it's actually happening in real life and the welfare state it increases the burden on us it incentivizes more people to come in and incentivizes them not to work why bother why work government's given us money it also on the other side incentivizes Americans not to be charitable why be charitable let the government take care of these people it's such a warped welfare state system that is getting us from every angle and it's also going to spiral us into we're already in terrible financial shape as it is now it's going to get even worse on top of this conflict of cultures.
0: So I'd just like to add a little bit for all the people that constantly say when I say anything about this subject, other than, just open the borders and let everybody in, that I should have my anarchist card pulled or something, as though you get to fucking decide that. All right, so I'm just going to give you an idea here, maybe a little bit bigger than Chris's idea of the, your 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 in laws moving into your house or something like that. Imagine that you were made uh, prince of dominion over a block of land. Uh, you 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 basically are going to be given the ability to have your own little anarcho libertarian utopia nation, if you want to call it that. What would you do to populate it? Let's say I give you a block of land. Let's say it's uh, it, it is it is significant in size, something the size of maybe even a small county, something with like maybe a couple hundred square miles of land. And we're talking like you know big. People, we're talking about Texas ranch size, you know, maybe ten thousand, fifteen thousand, twenty thousand acres or more. Maybe maybe fifty thousand, a hundred thousand acres of land. And but now you have your little country, but there is no. There is no people. It it can't be a country. It can't have an economy. It can't have trade. It can't do all the things that nations do, and you need to populate it. Would you just say, well, you know what? Anybody wants to. I got it for free anyway. Fuck it. Just come on in and do whatever you want. You wouldn't, and you know you wouldn't. You would come up with some sort of contract-based system, and you would probably, to not be stupid, charge people to become citizens. You'd have a citizen fee. In other words, if you want to be part of what you're doing, you have to invest in it. You have to invest in it. And you would probably set some sort of limits. Like, no, you can't just come in and and shit everywhere, right? You get your peace, and then you have to, like, have peaceful co-relationships with the people next to you. But I'll tell you what you wouldn't do. This is what I know none of you who give me shit for this would do. You wouldn't say, okay, what's going to happen is we're going to take all this citizenship money and make a slush fund, and anybody that shows up, we're just going to give them free shit. And then you certainly wouldn't. Let's say if this went on for a few generations before the population built up, and there was still plenty of land left over, and even if there were still plenty of places for people to settle, you wouldn't all of a sudden say to all the people that invested in it up till now, "Hey, from now on, we're just going to let anybody in that wants in, and they can take whatever they want from what's left," and then not expect it to fuck up every good thing you had built. And if in this system you created something that even you know libertarians, anarchists, agorists would all agree with. A private welfare system—you pay in and you take out, and it's voluntary. So if you don't want to be in the welfare system, you don't get—you don't have to. You, you just don't. If, if anything goes wrong for you, you're fucking on your own. You didn't want to do collective insurance, basically, on a private agreement. You wouldn't then say, "But anybody that wants to can now come in, pay one month's fee, and reap the full rewards of the welfare system," would you? Because you would be a fucking moron if you did that. And whatever you had built, whatever opportunity you had been granted, or if it was your dad and you were like the princeling who inherited, you would fuck it up. Now this isn't hard to understand. Now let's do it with a country of over 300 million people with a 1,000 fucking welfare programs. The people that are coming in don't even have to invest one nickel into the system. And they are open to getting hundreds of those welfare programs the day that they get here. And you're shocked that there's 10,000 people a day pouring over the fucking border, drawing down what's left of the country. And this is because you don't know the fucking words, cloward, priven, strategy because that's what you're looking at you're looking at a systematic plan to destroy the nation you live in and while you think it's all okay it's not okay you either have a nation or you don't if we're gonna have borders then they have to be meaningful or you don't have a country and right now this country is on teetering on the edge of not being a country most of you listening to my words For all of the flaws that every government has. For all the flaws of every nation state that has ever existed. You grew up in the greatest fucking nation that ever was. It was nowhere near its potential. I agree with you if you say that. We can be better. We can be so much better. But we were still the greatest nation that ever was. And we are now turning into a third world shithole. A third world shithole. And I'm telling you what's about to happen if something isn't done. We're going to have a Batman movie without Batman. I want you to think about that again, especially if you've watched Batman movies. A Batman movie without Batman, okay? Right? But Gotham City will be the whole fucking country. And you know what you call a Batman movie with no Batman? You call it Joker. You call it Joker. Joker. And if you haven't seen like the one that was put out with, uh, what's his name, King Phoenix in it, that's the one I'm talking about. Go watch it. And don't worry about his character so much. Worry about the way people are reacting when they realize that everything's corrupt and they have no fair shake in the world. And not only do they turn on the people they should be turning on, they turn on all the people. The only thing missing from that movie and the mood of this country right now are the fucking clown masks. But keep cheering on Open Borders, those of you that do. And I just hope that you've at least taken my advice of getting out of the cities. Because we are, on, we are well on the way to every major shit city in America becoming, instead of a city, a shitty in the model of Gotham. Let's hear from something a little more useful to your day-to-day activities and more involved with keeping things running on the homestead What the
3: heck is a soft start? Tim Toolman Cook will tell us. Hey guys, Toolman Tim here, coming back at you from the workshop where we create community, find freedom, promote preparedness, and share success. Back with another expert counsel segment, so let's dive right in. This week's question is, can one of your experts talk about soft starts? Recommendations on brand, sourcing, applications, implementation, sizing, cautions, etc.? I have an old freezer that runs like a top. Neither of my generators, 2 kilowatts or 3 kilowatts, will start it. I would like to be able to run the freezer during a power outage and don't know if I just need to buy a bigger generator or if I can use something like a soft start to allow one of my current generators to run it. A soft start cannot be a magic bullet. There must be a trade-off when using one. More wear and tear on the compressor, perhaps? Thanks for your help. Jake okay so there's a bunch to unpack here but i would say let's start out with i see it as three options option number one a bigger generator option number two a soft start on the existing freezer or option number three which wasn't really mentioned but a new freezer now let's start with the first one (laughs) i mean i love generators and i'm never gonna say that you can have too many Two is one, one is none, and three is a guarantee. Absolutely. But you do already have two of them. So (laughs) that's up to you. If you want to upgrade there, great. But here's the thing. Here's my feelings about a soft start on an old deep freeze. You have an old freezer. That's the problem. It runs well, but number one, it definitely is going to draw more power than a newer one will. It's definitely drawing a lot of power on startup, whether that's... a an issue that it's starting to go or it's just always been that way because a two or three thousand kilowatt sorry a two or three thousand watt generator should be able to start that especially the three thousand as long as that's the running watts uh, you know even at peak watts that should be able to start it so it must be there must be quite a quite a hard and fast quick draw there now the thing is it's an old deep freeze Who knows how much longer it's going to last? Sure, it's working great. I just, me personally, I would have a hard time spending, you know, a not insignificant amount of money on a soft start for a deep freeze that could just give up the ghost tomorrow. I'm not saying it's going to, but your problem would also be solved if you bought a new freezer. Now, that may not be something you want to do. I can understand that as well but it would give you two working freezers for the intern as well. So, that's your other option. And honestly, that's kind of where I fall on this. When I look at those situations, I mean, sure, you could upgrade your generator, but that's not solving the problem of having an old deep freeze that has a big power spike every time it turns on. You could add the soft start to an old freezer, but you still have an old freezer with a new soft start on it. So, for me, if I had to look at it just... Pure numbers perspective, I would say, go with a new deep freeze. however, if you want to go soft start, I'll definitely share my limited expertise on this, and I would also chime in and say I'd love to hear Sean Mill's expertise on this as well because he's probably had more experience than I have. The only experience I've had is with uh the brand it's made by network r v and it's called soft Start r v and they make them for r v Air conditioners, central air conditioners for your home, that sort of thing. Now, I personally bought it on Amazon. I haven't actually used it yet, but the company has been incredible with me. I've uh, spent quite a bit of time emailing back and forth because they didn't have a wiring diagram for my model of a central air unit, and they were absolutely great. They asked for pictures, they'd give me a little bit more, uh, asked for a little more information, and then they would send me, they sent me back the wiring diagram. It's totally something that you could do yourself as long as you're somewhat comfortable around electrical but it is you know uh, there is some cutting some wires and that sort of thing involved now do yourself a favor and before you buy one no matter what you go with because i almost bought the wrong one call whatever company you end up dealing with ahead of time before you purchase one and say hey this is my situation this is the item I want to run it on, which model will work for me? Because there was quite a bit of confusing information on their website. So it was nice to talk to a human being. So I would definitely recommend that. But I have had nothing but great things to say about this company so far. And like I said, they're on Amazon, so check them out. And again, if Sean Mills wants to chime in on this, I would love to hear his thoughts as well. But for those who don't know, Soft Starts, you know, you run them on anything with a compressor. So, you, you know, fridge, a freezer, central air, uh, or an air conditioner on an RV, and lots of other things. But basically what happens is, uh, when the compressor kicks in, when it goes from stopped to start, there tends to be a really quick, really high spike of power. And a lot of generators can't handle that. So, you know, the long and the short of it is, this is a soft start spreads out that power just a little bit so it takes the 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 peak off of that uh quick amount of power that it pulls from and yeah it the one i bought was a little over 300 dollars canadian for our central air unit so they're not again cheap but they do exactly what they say they'll do now as far as be as them being bad for a compressor long term it's actually the opposite they tend to lengthen the life of air conditioning units fridges and freezers because it ends up taking a ton of that cold start stress off of them. So that's one of the selling points. It will actually lengthen the life of most items like that. So I hope that helps. I'd love to know what you decide to do. And guys, if you'd love to drop by the workshop Thursday, Sunday evening, 6 p.m. Mountain Time for Workshop Radio Thursdays, I do This Week in Prepping where we take a, a deep dive into all things prepping from the previous week. And Sunday evening, I tend to interview folks from around the preparedness world. So guys, keep the questions coming. Send them to me for entrepreneurship, small business, building off-grid properties, handyman, poverty mindset, anything and everything. And as always, stay happy, stay healthy, and have a great week.
0: Yeah, I'm going to completely agree with what Tim had to say at the end of this segment uh, with soft starts and compressors, and specifically with air conditioner units. Um, I had them put in on mine just for the life expectancy extension, and having them professionally installed was about 300 bucks per unit with two outside units. I hugely recommend that you consider that, especially at the point where you're investing in a newer air-conditioned unit. You're putting a ton of money into it. A lot of times, you know, I always suggest you pay cash if you can, but recently I had to replace one myself. That's why I've kind of gotten really familiar with this topic. And um, the company that we used offered 0% financing. It wasn't fake uh, we ended up paying for half of it and financing the other half because I'd rather have the cash flow right now and pay it out over time since it's not costing me any more money. Um, but I will also say this too. The newer shit in all this space, air conditioners, freezers, refrigerators, etc., pales in comparison to the longevity and reliability of the old shit. And when I say old shit, I mean old. I mean, you know, 2000 and back old And if you have an old deep freezer, and that old deep freezer still works, you would not get me to give that deep freezer up. I will fight you tooth and nail for it. I will kick your ass before I let you have my old deep freezer. Especially if, like many people, you're keeping that deep freezer in a place like a garage or a shop building, rather than inside a house where it is protected with you know, HVAC system in summer and winter, and it's in a relatively stable condition. And this is why. In my father's uh, shanty, which was the original home on the homestead built in the 1860s, and the house he still lives in was built in the 1890s, there is a refrigerator. I'm not exactly sure how old it is, but this is my grandfather's word, uh, quoted word for word to me, that I remember from 1978. 1978! A little bitty kid back then. And he said, oh, that thing, it's older than dog shit. All right. Now, I don't know exactly what that means, but I know what it means for him to say something was older than dog shit in 1978. I'm going to say that thing was at least 30 years old if it was a day, and it's probably just based on me trying to find something that looks like, like it online. 1930s, like late 30s, early 40s, World War II era. I have confirmed that refrigerator freezer is still sitting in that shed, and it is still working. Okay, let me say that again. The damn thing is at least at this point, bare minimum, 60 to 70 years old, and it still works. There is not a freaking box for chilling and freezing that you can buy anywhere today that you are going to stick in a shanty in rural Pennsylvania and run it for 60 years and it's still going to work. And... Every new generation of them loses longevity it's called planned obsolescence. So if I had some rock solid old ass deep freezer and I do, by the way, I have I got it for free cuz someone didn't understand this and gave it away. And I have had two in the last 15 years that were bought brand new chest freezer type, you know, either stand up or chest freezer die. In a, in a garage environment on me. In Texas. And one we didn't catch in time. And it was bad. And when I talk to people in the industry about this, basically they say to take the damn thing apart and use undercoating like you do on a car. All kinds of bullshit to try to make the damn thing last. And when I say, but what about like this old-ass one I have that's 30 years old? I think a lot, that'll outlast you. Don't worry about it. Worse than having a compressor go out. Put it in a compressor and go on with your life. Okay, so I'm back to... If you can make this thing run with a soft start, I would do it. And I wouldn't do it so much just so you can run it on backup. You will make something that's already a tank more of a tank. I, I I now consider something like that that's more than 20 years old and still works way better than what you can buy brand new on the shelf today. And, and it's not really to do with the question itself. It's the, the reliability of appliances across time. Another way to look at it, we had an air conditioner. I don't know when they got it. A window unit air conditioner that we would bring out in the summer. This is my grandparents' place. And we basically put up like a curtain that went into the kitchen. So we had only two rooms. And I'm closing my my grandparents' bedroom. So there's like two rooms being cooled with it. And that was the cool spot in the house during the heat of the summer. That thing, I remember carrying it to the window for my grandparents when I was barely big enough to carry it. It still works. You think you're going to go to Walmart today and buy a window unit air conditioner and you're going to have somebody using it in 30 years? I don't. I don't. Appliances have gone to shit like so many other things. Old ones are actually better than new ones from a reliability standpoint, in my opinion. Though getting parts for them may be very, very difficult. That's the trade-off. Moving on, let's hear about uh, Dakin's uh, solution and what that is from Doc Mones.
4: Hi, Joe Alton, MD here, also known as Dr. Bones, from the survival website, doomandbloom.net, co-author of the Book Excellence Award-winning fourth edition of the Survival Medicine Handbook, a designer of quality medical kits at store.doomandbloom.net. This week's question for the expert counsel comes from Bradley, who writes, Dakin's solution for treating ear infections. will this be effective, used as a frequent ear canal irrigation solution? Thanks. Brad, one of the challenges facing the caregiver in austere settings is how to prevent and treat infection. Infections are going to be more likely in survival settings where hygiene and sanitation are questionable, and without advanced medical care, a bad outcome may be the end result. A simple and affordable method that was used as far back as World War I may be the answer for the medic off the grid. Dakin Solution. Dakin Solution is a product of the efforts of an English chemist, Henry Dakin, and a French surgeon named Alexis Carrel. They searched for a useful antiseptic to save the life of wounded soldiers during World War I, so they used sodium hypochlorite, household bleach, and baking soda to make a solution that had significant protective effect against infection. The chlorine in the solution had a solvent action on dead cells, which prevented the accumulation of bacteria and open wounds. Today, Dakin's solution is still considered effective enough to be sometimes used after surgery and on chronic wounds like bed sores. It's easily prepared and can be made stronger or milder by varying the amount of bleach used. Use it to clean the wound during dressing changes by pouring onto the affected area or to moisten dressings used in an open wound. We'll talk about the ear later. Here's the recipe for Dakin Solution from Ohio State University's Department of Inpatient Nursing. You'll need unscented household bleach, that's sodium hypochlorite solution, 5.25%, avoid more concentrated versions, baking soda, that's sodium bicarbonate, a pan with a lid, a sterile measuring cup and spoon, you sterilize by boiling, a sterile canning lid and jar, and of course you want to wash your hands beforehand just like you would with any medical procedure. Then... You put four cups, that's 32 ounces of water, into the pan and cover it with the lid. Boil the water for 15 minutes with the lid on. Remove from the heat source. Then use a sterile spoon to add a half a teaspoon of baking soda to the water. Add bleach, that's sodium hypochlorite solution, 5.25% as I said, in the amount needed. Pour into a sterile canning jar and close with a sterile lid. Label it and store in a dark place. Now, the amount of sodium hypochlorite to add, well, for individual strengths, you should probably check out my article or video on Dakin solution at doomandbloom.net. There are a number of different strengths. Once canned, it's been said that Dakin solution will remain potent for about 30 days. For survival purposes, however, I would make it as I needed for wounds, or maybe just make a few jars at a time. Once open, you need to discard the remainder after a day or so. You may also consider Century Pharmaceuticals' buffered version of Dakin's Solution a commercial product. Unfortunately, Brad, Dakin's is too harsh for use in the ears, eyes, or nose. Better alternatives include hydrogen peroxide, carbamide peroxide, glycerin, or mineral oil, all classic treatments for hard earwax, also called cerumen, but even these can be irritating with frequent use, so use them only as needed and with caution. It can be used, however, as a mouthwash for infections inside the oral cavity, but must never be swallowed. Swish around for a minute before spitting it out and use no more than twice a week. So how should the survival medic use Dakin solution on wounds? To use on open wounds, you apply once daily for mildly infected wounds and twice daily for heavily infected wounds, those, let's say, that have draining pus. Alternatively, you would moisten, not soak, just moisten dressings used inside the wound but not above the skin level with a mild version of the solution and observe your patient's progress. I would prefer using it as a cleanser as opposed to a regular component of a wet dressing, though. Some studies show that use in this manner may be injurious to developing cells, and that's pretty important. Having said that, if you're dealing with a current severe infection as opposed to preventing one, it may be reasonable to incorporate Dakin's into the dressing. Full strength Dakin may irritate skin, so consider protecting skin edges with petroleum jelly or some other skin protectant or moisture barrier. As time goes on, look for evidence of skin rashes, burning, itching, hives, or blisters. If irritation occurs, you got to drop to a milder strength or just discontinue. Do not use in people that are allergic to chlorine. It should be noted that not all practitioners agree about the benefits of Dakin's solution. Certainly, there may be other options with regards to regular wound care, including sterile normal saline or even sterilized tap water. Antibiotics also play an important role in treating infected wounds. A good supply is important for any medic in a remote setting. However, Dakin's is well tolerated by patients is simple to make with affordable ingredients. It's another tool in the medical woodshed for scenarios where modern medical help is not on the way. This is Joe Alton, M.D., that old Dr. Bones, wishing you the best of health and good times or bad. Thanks for listening. Hey, learn more about more than 200 off-grid medical topics in the award-winning fourth edition of the Survival Medicine Handbook, and get your family medically prepared with quality kits and individual supplies from our entire line at store.doomandbloom.net. You'll be glad you did.
0: So, as far as use for the ears, no go, but this is something that the Survival Medic should know and who should a survival medic be at least one person in your household or group because you don't know when you're going to need it. Anyway, moving on, now let's talk about charging 12 volt systems with Sean Mills.
5: Hey everybody, it's Sean Mills with hackmyhomestead.com and the Hack My Homestead podcast, and I've got a expert panel question today on charging a 12 volt battery bank up with a generator. Uh, so the question is, what is the most efficient way to charge a battery using a generator? Uh, then the gentleman went into a significant amount of detail, which I will not uh, rehash here, but the high-level details are he has a 12-volt lithium iron phosphate 200-amp-hour battery bank and a 12-volt lead-acid 200-amp-hour battery bank with a couple small solar panels and inverters that he can run his primary components off of in the event of a power outage. He also has a 2,000-watt Champion generator that has both a 12-volt, 8-amp outlet and two 220-volt, 13-amp outlets. Uh, and he's asking, should he use the 12-volt or the 220-volt to charge the batteries up? I'm not aware of any 220 to 12-volt chargers, so I'm going to assume that your generator has regular 110-volt outputs as well, uh, and and then I'll kind of go into the math. So. If you are taking these batteries down to, say, 50% depth of discharge, that would be 100 amp hours that you're using at 12 volts, 12 volt nominal. It's actually the voltage is higher, but we'll use 12 volt because it's an easy number. That would be 1,200 watt hours that we've taken out of the battery. So in order to get the battery back up to 100%, we need to put 1,200 watt hours back in. Now, if we use a 12 volt, 8 amp supply, that is essentially 96 watts. Now, when you're charging a battery, you actually have to have the voltage going in higher than the voltage of the battery. So your flutter lead acid and your lithium iron phosphate battery are going to have slightly different voltage requirements, but essentially you're going to be in the neighborhood of like 14.5 volts to actually get the last bit of juice into the battery itself. And that's an important thing to understand because if that 12-volt, 8-amp outlet is not capable of actually stepping the voltage up to 14 and a half or 14.8. In the case of some batteries, you won't ever get to a hundred percent. Okay. So those are two reasons why I would not use the, um, the, the 12 volt charger. Number one, it's less than hundred watts and we're talking about having to put 1200 watt hours in. So you'd have to run that generator for like 13 hours, right? To charge it back up. And number two, we don't know if the, that output is actually capable of stepping the voltage up enough to fully charge the batteries so what do we do well if we get a standard uh, battery charger and most of the most normal battery chargers that you can get will go up to 30 amps like the cheap ones um you really you know with with a battery this size you, you probably want to go up to something maybe even as large as a 60 amp charger And these amperage ratings we're talking about on the DC side. So it'd be 60 or 30 amps at 12 volts nominal. Uh, But to put that in perspective, a 60 amp charger at 12 volts is 720 watts, which means that for less than an hour and a half of runtime, I can take that battery bank from 50% up to 100%. So you can see where... I'm really going more to why Why in the heck would I want to run my generator for 13 hours when I can run it for an hour and a half and get the same amount of juice into the battery, okay? So if it was me in this situation, what I would do is I would actually plug my device into the generator and plug my charger into the generator and let the generator do both jobs. That's going to put my generator probably somewhere between 60 and and 75% of... It's maximum rated capacity. And at that rate, I'm actually running my generator more efficiently and I will have less maintenance over time if I'm running it higher on the rated output. If I'm trying to draw 100 watts out of a 2000 watt generator for 13 hours, I might as well go ahead and change the oil and and do some preventive maintenance as soon as I'm done charging that battery up one time because those generators are just not meant to run that low. Um, so go with the higher voltage. If you can find a 220 volt to 12 volt charger, that would be a great option, but your standard ones are going to be your, your, your 110 volt options. Go with that. And then the other thing to think about here is that if I've got the two different battery banks, uh, I might actually be able to charge both of the battery b- banks up at the same time with separate chargers. But I don't want to charge them from the same charger. And the reason is the charge curve on a flutter lead acid bank and a lithium iron phosphate bank are completely different. The voltage, the way the voltage works in the battery as it's going from, say, 20 to 30 to 50 to 80 to 100 percent are completely different. So you never want to be charging those two different battery chemistries at the same time. Always do that one at a time, or if you're going to do both, make sure it's with two separate chargers. All right. Well, good question. Thanks for getting it in. You guys keep getting those questions into Jack and I'll keep getting them answered for you. Oh, and one other thing, guys, since I've got a few seconds here before I hit the six minute mark, I am trying to actively grow my TikTok follower audience. So any of you guys that are on TikTok, if you go look for me at HackMyHomestead, check out my content. And if you like it, give me a follow. That would be great. And it'd help me out.
0: Great stuff by Sean there. Nothing for me to add to that one at all. We do have another question here, though, for another expert council member. This one for Nicole Awesome Sauce. And she's going to talk to you about a plan some folks have to set up a private school and they want to keep the .gov's big-ass nose out of it. I'm looking forward to hearing this one, and then I might have a little bit to add myself before we move on to the next one.
6: Howdy, TSP. Nicole Sauce here from the Living Free in Tennessee podcast and Self-Reliance Festival. And I have a question in from KB who says, What is the best way to open a small private school in terms of minimal government interference and an ability to still raise funds? Should one go non-profit or for-profit? Well, I originally wanted to work with Matthew Sursley, the Agro's tax advice guy on this, and just sort of do uh, toss the ball back and forth. And KB did go on to give me details about like they've already consulted with someone who says if you're going, you know, sort of gone over benefits of nonprofit, benefits of for-profit. And if they go for for-profit has recommended a business structure for them that I'm not going to say what it is here because, For something as big as this, like they want to do a school, they want to make it a model and something that other people can apply in other areas, right, with their brand, I assume. And that's kind of a a bigger vision than I am starting my bone broth business right now, and it's very narrowly focused. If you're the bone broth guy, you know who you are. And I can tell you this, I have run nonprofits, I have founded nonprofits, I've raised money for nonprofits, so I do have a perspective on this just of something to think about. Don't take this as a recommendation, but something to think about. Because you want minimal government interference, you've already been leaning towards going for profit because the financial reports you give as a for-profit versus a nonprofit, unless you get audited every year. Are not as involved, and you don't have to prove you're still operating as a nonprofit to, to keep that status. Like, part of what we do is we keep our status. You don't have to register with the state to say, I'm raising money here and I'm not a fraud. Like, there's all of these different steps that, as a nonprofit, you get to take, uh, especially if you have a 501c3 or other designation of that of that kind cuz you could actually be a nonprofit and not file the 501c3 tax exempt thing but i think where kb is going with this is how can i launch the school have minimal government oversight or intervention and then also also maybe raise some donations for which people could get a tax write off and i'm just going to throw this out for consideration think about starting your school the way your advisor has told you to, as the defined kind of corporation your advisor has told you to do. Make sure you have your stuff lined out about what you want to do with the school, how that's going to work, how, the, you know, your board of advisors, all of that stuff, like, lined out the way you would. You're also going to need to decide, am we, are we accredited or not, right? Like, you can just be a school, and if you're not officially needing to provide government-sanctioned certifications, then you can just teach people stuff. You can teach kids stuff. You can teach whoever you want to, right? But if you need to be accredited, then you have to jump through some hoops. So decide if you want to do that. Personally, if I were starting a school, because I hate paperwork, I wouldn't want to do that. But you might. You might. Because you may want to be a bigger, more viable alternative option for, for parents who don't want to deal with homeschooling. On that note, depending on what state you're in, homeschooling rules are different, and I'm going to assume you know your homeschool rules versus, you know, like, just remember, I guess, if you're going to go into another state, you need to know what is possible from a homeschooling standpoint if the kids who are going to your quote-unquote school are really being homeschooled at your school. I think you see where I'm going with that. Now, when you set your school, figure out what your tuition will be, and then... If you want to raise money from donors consider starting a nonprofit that is a 501c3 or something of that nature uh, that offers scholarships so in essence to do that you have to figure out your vision your mission all of that stuff who you serve with the scholarship a fair application process that is clear and then you can offer the scholarship, and they can pay the tuition at your for-profit school for a set number of kids. Now, something you guys don't know about me is I used to be an administrator for something called the Children's Scholarship Fund. And the the, the Children's Scholarship Fund was founded primarily from the Walton family. Yes, that's Walmart, to prove that if you provide scholarships to poor people to go to private schools or to homeschool, you could use it for either, that parents will do what it takes to get their children into the better school options than the government schools. And when they launched the Children's Scholarship Fund, they committed to a certain number of years to pay scholarships for kids to go to private school, or if you homeschooled, you got like $500 a year. It wasn't a much, but you, you had to submit proof that you had used that money for buying materials or, or classes specific to your homeschooling, okay? And once one child was accepted into the Children's Scholarship Fund, you automatically, the rest of your siblings, got into it for the number of years that the Children's Scholarship Fund existed. I actually think they are gone now, uh, but I could be wrong. And if you ran a Children's Scholarship Fund chapter, you were your own entity, and you could raise money from other donors to expand the number of scholarships you operated. But you had to have, as I said, a very clear application process. Our application process was uh, you had to submit tax returns, proving income that you fit within the income, like you have to make under this amount. And then you had to fill in things like where you live and how we contact you. And you had to give us Reports either from the private school, like proving that you paid your tuition, or you had to submit receipts for your homeschool thing, and then we gave you checks to offset the tuition price. That was the Children's Scholarship Fund. I believe it was a 501c3. And at the end of that process, as it turned out, when they opened up applications, They had way more people applying for funding to get their kids out of terrible failing schools and into better schools than they could possibly ever provide funding for. It ended up being like, hey, these people have all passed it and we did a lottery to figure out who could go. And... With that information, and what the, our purpose of doing this, by the way, was to be able to say empirically actually, parents of below the poverty line do want what's best for their kids and are willing to sacrifice and figure out how to get them across town to a better school. And so, the arguments that we could not privatize the school system or at least get open enrollment to any school in your district, et cetera, et cetera, because poor people can't afford and don't care about their kids and can't afford to take them to a different area and won't do the sacrifice and you'll actually make poverty worse. I kind of blew that one out of the water. So that's my perspective is think about if you really don't want government, a bunch of government in, in, intervention but you still want to preserve the ability to raise funds think about having more than one structure talk to your advisors and I hope that your permaculture slash unschooling agile learning classics foundation hybrid school goes great definitely keep me in the loop on that because if that goes well and I can help promote it and help you get students I'd be happy to talk about it on my podcast you can find out more about that At livingfreeintennessee.com. Oh man, I almost forgot. Guys, Self-Reliance Festival is April 6th and 7th, and that is coming fast. We've got early bird pricing on tickets at only $95, and that includes camping on site and your parking through March 1st. So that's like coming up on us really quick. It's going to be a great festival. We've got Angry American. We've got Mike Shelby talking from Forward Observer. Joel Riles is going to be there. Toolman Tim's going to be there. Of course, I'm going to be there. John Willis is somebody you definitely want to meet. We've got a great lineup. Nick Ferguson's going to be on site. You really should check it out at selfreliancefestival.com. And if you've got a little extra time, consider coming up to Camden, Tennessee a few days early and take either our butchering class, or the medical class. We've got a wild edible class Monday afterwards, and we've also got a pretty cool self-defense course from Sunny Puzikas, and it's called Fight Like a Girl, and he's talking about techniques you can use when, you know, you're a smaller person up against a, a larger person. And you know what? I've got men signed up for that class, too, so it's actually okay to sign up as a man, but he's focusing in on some of the strategies that may work best for women. I mean, I'd take it as a dude. I don't know. That's up to you. Anyway, that's all over at SelfRelianceFestival.com. Make it a great week.
0: So, yeah, I agree with a ton of what Nicole said, and I think that's a very interesting case study as well on what actually happened when parents did have a choice. Going back to the original question, though, on the legal setup and the legal structure here, so with with the legal structure, like that is, you need to get into major level of, of, of CPA tax attorney specific to your situation. And I would take this whole idea of being a template, and that's a great idea, put it in a little bitty box. Stick it way up on the shelf in the back of the room and don't freaking worry about it. That is, right now, that is the last thing you need your brain on. If you build the success, then people can figure out how to templatize it. Right? And a person in a different county, let alone a different state, is going to have a different legal structure than you. And every second you spend trying to figure out how to make that fit a template, you are wasting your life, energy, your time, and your dash. You have two noble a pursuit here. Don't worry about it. Do what works for you. And when you are done and it's working and it's operational, when you have someone come in and make a little mini documentary about you to put on YouTube on a giant channel, then you can worry about somebody else doing it. There's, and this is, uh, this is universal advice for all these people with these ideas. I'm going to make a template. I'm going to make a template. I've done it. It sucks. Don't do it. You're wasting energy. Make the thing. Make the thing work. Then other people will make versions of it. Do not worry about anybody but you for right now. Next, you have a lot of shit to learn. You know what would be awesome? It would be awesome if you could outsource administration work. It would be awesome if you could outsource grading papers. It would be awesome if you could just run the damn school. Right, And then you can have all the extracurricular additional activities you want. But what if you had a situation for a very low fee per student where somebody would take care of the entire curriculum and like the key core coursework that every child needs to have? Reading, writing, math, science, history. What if you had all of that taken care of and there was a grade profile for every child and it was accredited even if you weren't? It's called a sellus. I know I sound like I'm an infomercial for them. It is who we use. I don't get any money from them. I don't get even a rebate on my own kids' tuition. But it's about 80 bucks a kid. Somebody that will not spend that much on their kid plus whatever it takes for you to watch them for the day is not worth worrying about in this model. If you want to create scholarships and all, that's another thing. Take that, put it in a box, shove it on a shelf, and that's later. The template goes in the back. This goes in front of the template, but it's still up on the shelf. Build the school worthy of people spending their money on it wherever you live. There are enough people with enough money that want a solution to sell to. If you can't get people to spend the money on their own kids that have the money, you're not going to get somebody to donate money to send somebody else's kids. So build the school. And I'm not saying you should do the Acellus thing. But I'm saying you should consider something like it because what it does for a price you cannot afford to do it for yourself is templatize that piece of it and outsource it, and you can focus on other things. Let's say you want your school to include a religious perspective that a cellist has pur- purposely left out of it. Because that way, if you want it, you can have it. If you don't, you don't have to. It could be secular or religious. Then you can teach the religious part of it, and doesn't even need to go on a kid's transcript because nobody cares. Nobody cares. When it comes to the kid trying to get into college, get a job, whatever, all they care is did you graduate high school? With a Cellus, and there's probably other programs like it, you got that done. And again, at eighty bucks a kid. And I had somebody email me yesterday of ways you can do it cheaper or for free using a materials. Yes, but that piece of it is worth the outsourcing. That's why we do it. Because it is accredited. Because when that kid goes to get into college, when that kid goes to get a job and they say, Do you have a high school diploma? Yes, here it is. And unlike the one you make for yourself, which homeschoolers don't have no problem with, but unlike that, there's no way to determine that it's not just a high school diploma from a school in freaking California. So I'd really recommend that you consider that approach. And this idea of what legal structure, the answer is more than one. If you decide to back-end a a, a scholarship into this, that scholarship should exist as a not-for-profit by itself, and it might be associated with the the entity that holds the school, but it will not be the entity that holds the school as a business. The school should be a for-profit business, in my opinion, unless your expert has told you otherwise and can at least answer to, to, to the stuff I'm adding. You should play this for them. And see if they understand it. Because if they don't, you need a new expert. They can say I'm wrong and I'm cool with it. But they don't understand why I'm saying what I'm saying. You need a new advisor. You do. Because this is really simple to understand. A scholarship should be in a scholarship foundation run as an independent thing, at least on paper, that people can donate money to for the purpose of providing scholarships underneath the charter of the scholarship. It has to be separated or you're commingling funds. This is bad. Don't do it. They don't do it. Another way to look at this from the profit nonprofit thing the words of Mark Shepard ring true. A nonprofit without a profitable entity attached to it is a professional begging organization. That's why I would encourage you to consider building the school as a for profit school. Right? Or a for profit educational child care facility might be better than school, right? You might have to get licensing as child care personnel for the school, right? That would bet you basically let you run a daycare. Yeah. Okay? And you probably would have to have a certain headcount of certified people at any time on site with the children, depending on your state. Again, this is more legalese that you have to check out. But one way or another, I would make this a place that allows people to come while they learn versus specifically to learn, but it is a prerequisite that the child be enrolled in the program of your choice that actually provides the back end of the education, and it would be like outsourcing. And the next thing I would do is I would get my ass on the phone with a company like Acellus and say, this is my plan, this is what I want to do, can we come up with a block rate because I bet you, you can save well below that $80 per student average if you even had a couple dozen students to test grade the thing. In fact, if you go to Acellus, it'll save, you'll see there's a section that says four schools because there's thousands of public state-run schools using Acellus. So that is my hope that you can start to realize this needs to be more modular than monolithic to do this right. And what it does is it also reduces the attack vectors. So whether it's a government or somebody wanting to sue somebody, the scholarship is over here in its little corporation bucket, right? It's a nonprofit corporation, or LLC. And the, the, the care facility, the, the enabling facility that, you know, owns that, that's probably an entity that is not the building. And the building and the land the building is on is probably in a limited liability uh, company, Right, Or I'm sorry, a limited liability partnership or some sort of real estate trust and the land is hold by another entity and one entity leases the land from the other to keep everything clean for a very small pittance amount of money. It, it, that is how, be- that's only the beginning of what I would do here and I can't be specific because I don't know your specifics. But if if you play this for whoever's advising you and they do not understand what I'm saying, find somebody else. And if you're listening to this and you're that person and it pisses you off that I just told them that, I don't care. I don't care because it's the truth. This is something that has high probability, not potential, high probability of eventual attack. This is not something the state wants. This is not something a lot of people want. And this is something that could eventually accrue a lot of money. And the thing that would accrue the most amount of money would be the nonprofit scholarship fund, because what you want is a great big battery of money there, so as learners apply, they can come into your system. And by separating that, you're putting a wall around that money that is separate from what you as an institution do. And anybody that would advise you other than at least that level of separation does not qualify for your business at this time. I'm sorry to get on a soapbox. I didn't think I would talk that much about it. But the more I think about it, my business brain goes into this and my legal brain goes into this. That's the approach you need to be coming at this from. And from a straight-up business cost assessment, outsourcing the administrative work at that low a price, you can't beat it. And you can always change that. You don't have to sign a contract with them long-term to maintain that. You could do a one-year contract if they even give you a good enough deal to work, make it worth doing. Or you can tell parents, until we get this running, just enroll your kid in the cellist, you pay the bill, and they show up with their laptop or tablet. You can't do that for 80 bucks a head. Any other way that I can think of. Let's take care. Oh, take care. Let's move on now, and let's hear from Patrick Rohrman about a horrible, horrible accident.
7: Hey, guys, it's Patrick with MT Knives coming to you today with today's expert counsel segment of the week. Today's segment comes from one of my stakeholders, Brad Fulbright, who sent me over an article back in December, and we're going to talk about it today. Uh, this one's going to be a little bit different than normal. We're going to talk about, unfortunately, the fatality of a young man um, from a neck knife. So um, I really hate even talking about this. Um, first of all, I want to say my condolences go out to the man, his family, and his children. and. Uh, I don't, like I said, I don't like talking about it, but I feel like hopefully um, we can learn some good takeaways from it and also kind of dispel some of the propaganda being used by news and other people who want to push an agenda. And that agenda is the, uh, how should I say, <clears throat> the agenda is the villainization of knives or as weapons or, you know, pushing the uh, anti-gun, anti-knife agenda. So, I'm going to probably read part of this article to you and then talk about some of the things that stand out to me and how to think about a news article when you read it or hear it. So, um, Boston 25 News. A law enforcement source with knowledge of the investigation tells Boston 25 it appears Kennedy's death was caused by a knife necklace that he was wearing and that he accidentally tripped in the Kloon uh, parking, parking lot and somehow cut himself with his knife. So let's see, I don't I don't think I'm going to read the whole article to you, but I'll talk about some of the takeaways from it. Well, actually this article is shorter than I thought. There's only one more paragraph, so I'll go ahead and read it. It says, a law enforcement source confirmed that Kennedy was at the Kloon celebrating a birthday with a group of people and that the incident happened after the party was over When he was walking towards a bus, the group rented to take them um, to Cologne and back home. So, anyways, that's uh, this story. I've read several different articles, watched several different newscasts about what had happened. And uh, you kind of want to know what was the brand of knife and uh, just exactly what happened. Unfortunately, I cannot find any information on the brand of the knife or what happened. So Brad was kind of curious as to, did the knife come through the sheath? Did the knife, you know, did he just have the knife out, cut himself with it? And there's a lot to be desired from the news articles. But uh, first I'm going to talk about the whole appears caused by a knife. Another article I read uh, sounded like people found him and thought maybe he had been attacked. And I think they kind of ruled that out somehow cut himself they don't really know right he was celebrating a birthday with a group of people i don't know what kind of celebration it is um, whether or not alcohol was involved but that could have played into the accident Um, it was after the party and they had rented a bus typically i would think if you rent a bus to take you to the party take you home there uh, probably were some drinks involved the family said it was a freak accident and the DA also sides with them. The first people who would be likely to say if there was a problem with the knife or if it was foul play would be the family. And the family saying that it's a freak accident. So what are some of the things that could have contributed to this? Um, I'm, I'm guessing it was probably dark outside. Possible impairment. Uneven terrain. Um. You know, the thing is with an accident is it's an accident. It can happen to any one of us, and any time that you're dealing with a knife, dealing with a gun, dealing with something dangerous, you have to be cautious. I tell people all the time, if you're going to pull out your knife, make sure nobody around you is going to bump you. Um, Make sure that you're aware of your surroundings, and just be careful. Think about the fact that you're pulling out a sharp knife. I've had people cut themselves with knives that I make, like 90, I don't even know what percent of the time, it's just they were being careless, right? It only takes a second, and your life can change. If you're going to carry a knife, you need to no know basic first aid, and, uh, you know, you hit an artery, it, it takes seconds, minutes, to uh, bleed out. So, know how to stop bleeding. Unfortunately, if you cut the wrong arteries, there is no stopping the bleeding. So, anyways, I hope that this is some helpful information. I know that people have mentioned this in some of Jessica's videos. They mentioned it in uh, some of Off Grid with Doug and Stacy's videos. And people are pushing agendas. And they're like, oh, you know, neck knives are dangerous. Well, driving your car is dangerous. We take dangers every we we face dangers every day we wake up and walk out the door. And accidents are gonna happen. A meteorite can fall out of the sky and kill me dead right now. Doesn't mean I'm not gonna doesn't mean I'm gonna go live in a cave. You have to be smart, you have to use your use your head and uh, pray that nothing bad happens. So like I said, my condolences go out to this guy's family. It's sad to me that people will use this kind of accident to push their agendas and uh, people will say just all sorts of ugly hateful stuff and it's an accident they happen try not to let those accidents happen to you once again this has been Patrick with MT knives oh yeah I want to mention this too a friend of mine the other day bought a very popular brand of neck knife for his child he didn't want to spend uh, MT knives kind of budget (laughs) on a child knife and I don't blame him, but he brought it over and he asked me what I thought of it, showed it to me, and I looked at it. It's a very well-known brand. If I said it, you would know it. It probably sells 10,000 or more of these knives every month. So I took the knife. I simply held onto the lanyard, dropped the knife, and the knife fell out. It's amazing to me that a company like this, selling as many knives as they sell, would have that poor retention on their knife. And I told them, I said, hey, I wouldn't let my child wear that. Children are active. They jump down off of things. The last thing you need is a sharp knife coming out of its sheath uh, with your kid, right? I test every one of my sheaths. I make sure the retention is good. And uh, I tell people, hey, if your sheath gets loose, get a new sheath, no longer carry that knife. So make sure that You're being as safe as you can when it comes to wearing a knife around your neck. And, uh, yeah, stay safe. Don't be buying your children knives that are going to fall out that they're wearing around their neck. This has been Patrick with Empty Knives. Be safe.
0: So, yeah, and I think it's a shame that in this instance of an actual fatality, we don't know what actually happened. Because I think that would do a lot to help us figure out what to do to avoid it. And I, I wish... You know, they say it's a freak accident. Well, what does that mean? Let, let me let me explain why I only recommend neck knives that I've put my hands on, and, and then I think this will make more sense. A long time ago. Um, I was approached by a company that I never did a deal with because of some quality issues and some other things. Cold steel. And I do like some of the things they make. I think they make some very good things. And one of the best things they ever made wasn't even a knife. It was a uh, pepper spray called Inferno. And it was fantastic. And I have no idea why they don't make it anymore. It's probably the best thing they ever made. They also have some other pretty cool things. But one of the items that was sent to me was a neck knife. It was a pretty cool neck knife for the price. It wasn't anything like Patrick Mason quality, but it was pretty nice. And I decided I would wear it for a while and try it out. And it seemed pretty um, secure. It did not seem like... so. Se- well, the, the second or third day I rode it, I drove somewhere in my truck. And I had it on, and I had it under my shirt. And when I got where I was going, and I stepped to go to step out of the truck, I felt something rub my, uh, I guess the top of my stomach just below where my last ribs were, uh, but centered, like right under the sternum, and I pulled my shirt up, and that knife had just, while I'm driving in my truck, dropped out of the sheath, and was laying basically in my lap with the point, like, just touching my uh, my stomach, you know, just below my diaphragm. Without even having a wreck, had, had I had like an almost wreck, a stop short, I could have at least stabbed the shit out of myself. Or, hey, what about a wreck in an airbag deployment? So, at that moment, I made two decisions. Three. One, I'm not going to do an official partnership with Cold Steel. That was the first one. The second one was, I do not wear a neck knife under my shirt specifically when I'm driving. I pretty much don't carry a neck knife when I'm driving. Uh, there's just too many other things that, that, that could go wrong with an accident or something like that. So I just don't wear a neck knife when I'm driving. If I have my neck knife with me, I take it off, I throw it in the console, and when I get out of the car, I put it back on. Okay? Um, but the, 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 the final thing is that I am really concerned about the quality of a sheath and the holding capacity of the sheath with a neck knife for anything that could go wrong. And so I put a lot of faith in what Patrick does. uh, The way he builds his Kydex sheaths and what have you. But I also always check the security of a sheath before I put a neck knife on. I grab grab the lanyard in one hand. Because if you grab the sheath, you might cut your thumb right off, by the way. In fact, Patrick wraps his knives up with a disclaimer with a rubber band around it saying, hey, don't do this, dummy, you'll cut yourself. Because several people have grabbed the sheath and pulled the blade right across their thumb where it makes contact with it. Uh, so you grab the lanyard, and I kind of tug on it, and if it gives at all, I'm either you know heating that sheath up and reforming a little bit, but I'm not using it that day. Um, it is a risk. Everything in life has risk. Putting your socks and shoes on and leaving the house has risk. But we also need to be aware of those risks. So that's, that's just kind of my addition there. Uh, moving on, let's, let's learn about tires from Eric Hammond, one of our latest expert council members.
8: Greetings. Eric Hammond here, back with another expert council segment. I'm going to talk about something tiring. Tires. So we're going to talk about replacement, picking out a good tire, and then some maintenance associated with it. So on your tires, there are tread wear indicators. These are straight bars that run perpendicular to the tread. As your tread wears down, these bars start to get exposed, and that's an indication that you will need to replace your tires soon. The DOT and several state regulations expect you to replace your tires at 2 32 of an inch, and there's a simple test for that. You just take a regular penny, you stick Abraham Lincoln's head down inside the tread. If his head is covered up, You got plenty of tread if you can see the top of his head you are down to two thirty seconds of an inch and you need to think about replacing those quickly. So I go to my driver's door and inside of my driver's door there will be a tire placard that will indicate the size of the tire that was on that vehicle originally and also the pressure that's supposed to be in those tires. It'll say something like P 225 55 R 17. The P would indicate it's a passenger car tire. Sometimes you'll see an LT in that spot. That'll indicate it's a light truck tire. The 225 is the width of the tire in millimeters. The 55 is called the aspect ratio. That is the percentage of the width, and that indicates the height of the sidewall. The R designates this as a radial tire, and the 17 is the diameter of the wheel. Some vehicles will show different tire sizes front and back on that tire placard, so that's going to affect tire maintenance. When you go to rotate these tires, you can't swap the tires front and back if they're different sizes. And also, I like to purchase tires that are non-directional so that I can swap these tires side to side as well when I'm trying to do some of my tire maintenance. So picking out a potential tire for replacement... I use TireRack.com and TireBuyer.com, whether you buy from them or not. It's a great way to pick out different tires and look at the comparisons between them. I'm looking for the best value. So everything is a compromise. I have to compromise between handling and grip. I have to compromise on the noise that tire makes. How long that tread wear is going to last. How is the ride quality going to be? Is it going to be very harsh? So everything I pick in a tire is a compromise of these things. When you click on a tire, you're going to notice that there is a rating. It's a Uniform Tire Quality Grade, or UTQG Standard. There are three things associated with this. The first is the tread wear number. The tread wear number indicates how long they expect the tread to last in miles, basically. So the bigger the number, the longer life you're going to get out of this tire, and the inverse is true. The lower the number, the less you're going to get out of this tire. I look for a tire that's at least a 500 or better. As a very vague rule of thumb, a 500 will last 50,000 miles, a 600 will last 60,000, a 300 will last 30,000. But that can vary greatly depending on your driving habits. Aggressive drivers are very hard on tread. If you take off quickly and you brake aggressively, you will scrub the rubber off on the pavement. It's just a giant piece of sandpaper out there wearing down your tires. The second thing that I look at on the UTQG standard is traction. So they measure the friction of a skidding tire across several surfaces and assign it a rating these are double a a b and c i never buy a tire that is less than an a i don't want to buy a tire with a low coefficient of friction and then the last one is a temperature rating which is a b and c this is much less critical a c rated tire is still rated for sustained speeds of 85 to, to 100 miles per hour and i never drive that fast so i don't really pay attention to that but comparing the tread wear and the traction numbers I will get an idea of what kind of tire I want to buy and then I start looking at brands that I might favor over one over the other. Keep in mind that depending on where you buy your tires, the same brand and same model may be a completely different tire. For instance, Goodyear used to sell a tire called a Goodyear Wrangler. If I went and bought that tire out at a tire shop, it had a completely different tread wear rating and a completely different tread pattern on that tire as to compared to one that came from Walmart. A lot of these discount stores get products that are completely different. So make sure you buy a quality tire, make sure you buy it from a reputable company. And then just for some tire maintenance to go over, check your tire pressures regularly as the temperature changes 10 degrees up or down it affects your tire pressures at least a half a psi the air will leak out of them so you do have to refill them and then just as a side note for the most part filling your tires with nitrogen is a giant scam the air already has 70 some percent nitrogen in it so if you just put air in it you put nitrogen in it Uh, there are some places where it gets cold and hot all in one day and you can get some low tire lights that come on so some people will put nitrogen in your tires so that that prevents the light from coming on in the middle of the day but for the most part i'm gonna rate that as a giant scam inspect your tires for damage regularly punctures like nails or things rotate your tires every five to ten thousand miles based on wear It's a good idea to try and do that yourself the cost on that can add up significantly and then evaluate how they're wearing you may need to modify the tire pressures to suit your needs if i have a large pickup truck and i never haul any loads the rear tires may wear the centers out because i the tire placard may tell me to put a significant amount of pressure in there to carry the load and most of the time i'm not carrying that load so check how they're wearing and evaluate that and then you may have parts that wear out on your car or truck that you need replaced and you might need an alignment sometimes so just keep those things in mind I like to keep a 3x5 note card in my glove box to keep track of any maintenance. And I will know the last time I rotated my tires because I wrote it down. All right. Well, if you like that kind of thing, send in any mechanical related questions, gas, diesel, electric, alternative fuels, broken things that should work but they don't questions related to that go ahead and send them my way and give me a crack at answering them if you want to keep up with me just check out my youtube channel at eric hammond the joy of homesteading and on there i've got a video there showing you how to fix a flat tire at home and i think it's a pretty good resource so check it out thanks you might want to mark the timestamp of that
0: one and put it in like your notes program or something like that and The next time you need to buy new tires, you might want to listen to that one again. Or if you need some sort of tire repair or something like that done, you you really might want to listen to that. And if you have teenagers that are beginning to become drivers, uh, I've always said that I think if we're going to have something called a driver's license, and I don't know that we have to, but if we're going to have one, then like the basic operational things of a vehicle should be part of the test. It, it, it doesn't take a lot to be able to you know, pull out with your turn signal on and know when you're supposed to use it, even though most people don't, uh, or know what the traffic laws are. But it, you should at least know what an internal combustion engine is, what an oil change is, when you need one and when you don't. Uh, and you should have some basic knowledge of your vehicle because you're talking about something that people... It's probably the most second, the second most expensive investment people make over their lifetime is the cost of their vehicle ownership. Because it's buying the vehicle, it's insurance on the vehicle, it's parts for the vehicle, it's repair of the vehicle, it's service of the vehicle, and insurance of the vehicle. And so I don't know anything in this day and age that probably costs the at. Now, if you're you know self-employed, health insurance might be a competitor for second place. But for most people, your vehicle is your second largest expense in your life, and people don't know anything about it. An example is I remember one time I was talking to a guy at a service place, And he was talking about this guy that bought his daughter a car and they had a certain number of oil changes that came with the car when you bought it. Like it was like, you know, a three year lease and you got an oil change every three months or something like that. It was built into the lease and you had a card that came with it. Every time you had your oil change, you punched the card. Well, apparently the tax were taking advantage of this young girl uh and what she was doing is she literally was getting an oil change every time she filled up the gas tank i'm not picking on her because nobody taught her it's not fair to pick on her she was told it was important to get your oil change given a card said here the oil changes are already paid for you know somebody at that shop should have said honey you were here two weeks ago you you put 700 miles on your car you do not need an oil change but Uh, That just shows you the depth and lack of understanding, and tires are expensive, and they're only going to get more expensive, and the way I know that is everything's going to get more expensive. With that, before I get into my segment, I want to remind you guys about the Self-Reliance Festival happening in Camden, Tennessee, run by John Willis and Nicole Awesome Sauce. Uh, you can learn more about it at the com. It'll be one of the more recent postings after you're listening to this. If you scroll down from this episode, you'll find it within two or three uh, stories on the site. Uh, and you can click the link and go learn more about it and sign up. But the reason I'm telling you is tomorrow, Friday the 1st of March... Will be the last day of early bird pricing, so the price is going to go up. So you should, if you're going to go or think about going, you should check it out now. And if you were in the Daily Mail, you would already know this and you would get updates from me. So also consider signing up for the Daily Mail. Just go to the dot com and up at the top you'll see a series of tabs, and one says Daily Mail. Guess where you sign up for the Daily Mail? There. All right, well, let's talk about this. So. I've been recommending these galvanized raised beds by Vavor this week, and I've recommended several different versions of galvanized raised beds. I think they make an awful lot of sense. I think that the pricing on them has gotten to where, as long as you don't mind bolting a bunch of panels together, which is not hard, but it does take quite a bit of time, uh, they make way more sense than building them out of pressure-treated lumber. I mean like a billion times more sense. They're going to last four, five, ten times longer. And they're going to cost less. And anything that lasts longer and costs less is worthy of your consideration. But as people start building these beds, they look at them and say, Self, that's a big-ass hole. Since I'm not digging a hole, I don't know where to get the dirt from. How do I fill this thing up? And then they say, Self, why don't you just go your ass down to Lowe's or whatever and buy yourself some bags of soil and dump it in there? And they say, well, let let me think about this. Those bags are about yay size and... They start doing a calculation in their head and going, I don't know how many that is, but I, I think I'm going to make multiple damn trips to even find out. And they say, Self, maybe I should take my ass to a, a volume calculator, fill calculator, and stick some numbers in there. And they stick something in there like eight foot long, four foot wide, two foot deep. And it says something like 0.97 cubic yards. And they go, Hey, Self, that's a lot of shit. What do I do now? Well, Unless you just have more money and you know what to do with buying it in bags is probably a bad idea, however, that doesn't mean I wouldn't do it at all. You know, I might buy an inch and a half two inches of depth of really high quality organic garden soil, like the miracle Gro gold is pretty damn good if I couldn't get something else good elsewhere okay, and I didn't want and I didn't have time to build it. But I'm going to tell you what I'm going to do with mine. It's going to be kind of a lasagna garden type thing. One thing you can get for cheap, if you buy it bulk, or completely for free, if you just drive around and talk to road crews, is wood chips. And in a two foot deep box, I would put a full foot of depth of wood chips on the bottom I did not say make up 50% of your fill by tilling it into your soil because you will in fact make something very much akin to concrete. Now it is going to break down over time, they are going to settle significantly but not as much as you would think and your soil level will go down in time and you will have to add more to your bed. That is fine. You will do that in the future, probably mostly with compost you will make for yourself and that's why I recommend you go to Home Food Systems and take our compost course. But then you got to figure out what to fill the rest of the stuff up with. Well, before you do that, let's go ahead and charge up that giant, beautiful battery that you just made. And that giant, beautiful battery was just made with wood chips. If they are old, skanky, mushroom-smelling wood chips, you don't have a lot to do. And so if you can find like a big pile of some wood chips somebody was going to do something with, and they'll give it to you to take it away, that is gold for a variety of reasons. That's why there's about... God, I guess there's 30 yards or more of wood chips sitting in my field, and every day they sit there, they get better for their intended purpose. No, they will not look as good for manicured mulching along a walkway, but they will do better for what I want them to do every day that they're there. Even in that situation, what I would do is I would get myself a bottle of GS Plant Foods Foods Liquid Kelp, okay, Uh, and I would probably spend a little bit of money and use about a pint of it in multiple applications. So maybe double or triple what it says per watering can, if you're going to use a watering can, and and completely saturate, even if it takes several days, to make sure you, you give it time to saturate and soak into the wood. Soak that wood in, because you're adding so much mineral reserve to that bed. And that means those plants can form fungal relationships with soil hyphae that you will build over time. And even if the plants don't get a full foot deep down in there, they're going to be able to have those minerals and uh, whatnot moved up into their soil profile by microorganisms and su- fungal hyphae networks. Now we got to fill the rest of it. Okay, I would not hesitate, if you have a lot of leaves around, to put another inch or two of leaves and shredded would be better and i would literally go wood chips and then a layer of dead leaves that's going to form all kinds of leaf mold and there's going to be all types of fungal spores on those leaves that are going to contribute now we only got to fill 10 inches and remember the whole damn box is about a cubic yard i think of four by eight by two it's that a pickup truck bed is what you're looking at. In fact, when I put my V4 raised bed together, I looked at it, and I remembered that my neighbors up in Arkansas went down to the junkyard, got a couple uh, of the plastic pickup truck bed liners, shoved them together on the open end, and staked them together with T-post stakes and made a raised bed that way. And you know what? It looked, and they were probably six-foot bed liners with a couple-foot overlap, looks about the same amount of space... So that's another way you could do it if you didn't want to buy the. But they don't look as nice, but, you know, they'll work. Um, But a, a full yard. Well, I would say the best fill dirt for this is just going to be screen topsoil. And you're going to treat that like native soil in your ground, and you're going to build fertility in it over time. So where I live, there are two materials places, and both of them to buy topsoil because it's so cheap want you to have a commercial account. Well, I called one this morning and say this wasn't the way it always was. I, I don't buy much from y'all anymore. I used to buy a bunch, and I just bullshitted and said I might need to buy some because I have other ways I'm going to do this. And uh, I said, what do I have to do to have a commercial account? They said, you have to have an account up here with a business name on it. I'm like, well, I got an LLC and all that. Yeah, you can do that, but you don't need to worry about that. If you just give it up you can say it's Jack's Landscaping and have a, a credit card on file, that's a commercial account with us. So does the credit card have to be in the name of the business? They said, no, it can be in your name. Oh, okay, done. And then they also said, oh, by the way, Mr. Spirico, we'd love your business back. We'll give you a 10% discount if you have that. So check materials places. Look for screened compost. If they don't sell, uh, I'm sorry, screened topsoil, if they don't sell it alone and they sell some sort of a mix, look for a mix that's made with topsoil and compost Not sand and compost, which many materials places are doing because sand is cheaper. You don't want that. And that's what I would use as your primary fill. And then I would use either self-made or the highest quality fertility-based mix you can get for your top two inches of soil. And then I would begin building from there. Should you use biochar? If you have it, God bless you. Get it in there when you make it. And I would also, as I'm adding that um, topsoil, want to seed it with life and fertility. And about every couple inches, I would put down a layer of Dr. Earth 444 uh, gold fertilizer or something like it. Because it's probably going to be the newt of any life and any fertility. I know it'll look good because it's topsoil, but it's been abused, it's not been taken care of, it's been moved, it's it's designed for somebody to take a front end loader and dump it in a hole and spread it out where they're building a the house. That's generally what that stuff's for. They treat it like fill, but they use topsoil because they know they're gonna lay sod or something like that. Now here's a way to do it way cheap. As you're driving around, this is a good, you know, situational awareness exercise anyway. we see construction going on, make note of it. Go see that job site. Figure out about what time construction crews take lunch in your area and right before lunch starts. The foreman or somebody with some level of authority will almost inevitably be at a job site right before or right after lunch. Ask me how I know. I used to be one. And if you go talk to them, you may find that if they're doing some earth moving, they have more dirt to get rid of than they can deal with. Now, if it's, you know clay or like a rocky mix or something then they they may want to give it to you but you may not want it okay but if it's reasonably looking decent topsoil you know and like something like a blackland prairie clay right or a good so just because it's clay doesn't mean it's bad just is it pure shitty clay or is it like something you'd want to grow in you may be able to get it for free and you notice that all around you, you probably see signs in different places where they're building shit that says clean fill wanted. But the last thing that dude wants to do is load that shit up and move it somewhere else to get rid of it. So they'll usually spread it wherever they can, but a lot of times they have something they need to get rid of. I got a truckload one time, and I pro- if I needed more, I probably could have went and got another truckload. I asked a guy about it, and I said, hell, I'll even shovel it. He said, shit, you ain't got to do that, man. Jose, come here. He said, take this guy, go over there and just put some dirt in his truck for him.
4: Alright,
0: so we went over there and dude was good with the machine, but I'd find dude, that's enough. That is all that F three fifty needs to be hauling. I think this dude would have buried my truck if I had not supervised him loading it. So that's another way that you can get, you know, uh some material. But look up lasagna gardening and just how lasagna gardening's done and, and literally I just gave you my plan, sort of, but any variation thereof will work. You're just doing it in a box, and that will contribute a ton of life and organic matter. Please remember with anything with gardening, gardening, farming, etc., you're not feeding the plants, and when we started feeding the plants, it's when everything went wrong. And I know it sells to say plant food on a box. And that's why the industry initially did it. But then the big companies went all in on this idea. Plants need NPK, feed the plants NPK. If you're doing it right, and you're trying to get off therapy long term, and you want to be self-sufficient, you want to feed the soil and the soil biology. So thinking about things like, you know, indigenous micro organism cultivation, et cetera, is a great idea. And then remember this. Please remember this. Your first year of gardening especially, and even some in your second, when you're using this approach of I'm not using existing soil profile, I'm filling some sort of a container, because that's all a raised bed is, is a big container, you will almost never get great results. I'm not saying good results won't happen, but great results your first year or two because you're building an ecosystem that needs some time to mature. And a really great way to do this, here's another way to do this. Fill it a third. Plant a cover crop like buckwheat and cowpea. When the buckwheat starts to just begin to flower, terminate everything by flattening it down and put another few inches of soil on top of it. Plant another cover crop. If it's you're doing this spring to summer, you might take a full season to get this bed full is what I'm saying. But just check out. What you, I might do a second buckwheat and um, cowpea. Third, I might move t- something more toward the end of season. A good mix. Maybe some daikon and some stuff like that in there. And as it comes up and I'm heading into fall, terminate it lay down another loyal soil and plant a winter mix like winter pea, fava bean, and cereal rye. And I know some of you be like, man, I don't I don't want to wait that long before I start producing. Well, most of you that feel that way are probably going to have a plan over time to put in more than one bed. So maybe you bring two up really quick in the first way I gave it to you. And the second ones you're taking this approach, and if you really want to kind of gild the lily a little bit, since not, you're not going to take anything away, you normally I would t- tell you don't let you know buckwheat and cowpea really start producing because then they start taking all the extra nutrient out of their own roots to go and make flower and seed. But if you're going to leave it there, you could let the buckwheat flower... Wait until it starts to form seed heads. And people say, well, the buckwheat will grow. Big deal. I'm going to grow more anyway. And then terminate it just by crushing it with the next layer of soil and reseeding. And letting it flower for, you know, a few, the couple weeks the buckwheat flowers. And think of the insect nectary you're creating. And long term, I've come more and more to the conclusion that I want several of my beds and covers all summer long in nectary covers all summer long, and then I'll grow something else in that bed next year, and I'll make another bed into a nectary cover. I'm also doing a lot with interplanting. This is all stuff going into the cover crop course. But there's multiple ways to skin this cat, and what you might find is, let's say you can put four of these beds in. You might find it cost prohibitive to fill all four at once. So why not fill two through the season and two right away? Start your, your, your gardening in the two that are full And build up your pest uh, predator population with the other two. And what you'll find, the first season, which is like season two, that you grow in those beds you built that way, they will totally blow away the second season, the one you just built. So you might think you're going slower, but in the reality, you'll be going faster. But all of this says what? Start making your compost now. Take the bioreactor compost course now. There's a reason it was my first course HomeFoodSystems.com is forty bucks. It is some of the best forty bucks you'll ever spend. And again, remember we do have this direct relationship with VIVOR Now you can get these beds shipped to your house for about ninety-four dollars a piece with the discount. So check out, check that out too, and uh, definitely consider uh, getting started on all of this. Because if you're not producing some of your own food yet, you need to start. And if you are, you probably not definitely. I don't know your life, but you probably should be doing it more. And if you just want to get a great education at no cost, uh, we also just released the Principle-Based Permaculture Design Course, also at Home Food Systems. If you don't take this, I don't know why. Okay? It's free. It's free. It comes with a full certification. It lets you see what it's like to take a course with me as your instructor versus me as a podcaster you're listening to driving down the road. And I thought that that would be a good thing. I know I could have charged for it, and no one would have complained about paying for it. But I wanted to give y'all something as a gift. You guys have given me so much over almost 16 years now. I thought this would be one of, one of you know, I feel like I've given back too. But this would be another way that I could give back. And I feel like if I don't think at least once a week, what else can I give to this audience? I'm, I'm letting you down. And I know people say shit like that just to say shit, but I don't. And y'all that have listened to me a long time know when I'm being sincere like this, it's never an act. It's always sincere. Every day I look around my property. You know, I was sitting with my wife this weekend because this weekend was beautiful here. It was like 80 degrees. The ducks were out. The sun was out. We were having a beer together, sitting on the back porch looking at just all this explosive growth starting because this is spring for us. Uh, the, the groundhog did not lie this year. We have an early spring here in Texas, even though the last couple of days have been in the 40s. Um, and I said to her, I said, you know, almost 30 years ago when we met, could you ever envision that we would have all this? And she said, no. And I said, honestly, I knew I would do something really good with my life, but I I didn't know that we would get to the point where we could have this. Well, guys, gals... It's all because of you. And so I do try to negotiate these deals. I do try to put together these educational programs. I do char- try to charge enough to make it worth doing, but also as little as possible so that people can afford to do it. I don't want to sell a, a soils class for $4,000 when I could give you the education you really need for forty. You know, I just—that's I, I, not me. I, I, I am abhorred by what is known as the secreting of knowledge. One of my favorite court quotes is by somebody named Robin Morgan, and Robin once wrote, "Knowledge is power. Information is power. The secreting or hoarding of knowledge or information may be an act of tyranny, camouflaged as humility." If you want somebody to teach that there is a cost behind it but it doesn't need to be at such a premium that only the elite can afford the education. We live in an information age. There is no information I can give you that's not available for free somewhere. As a teacher, my job is to put it together in a way that saves you the time of looking for it. And to explain it in such a way that even if it seems complex, it's easy to understand. And so that's what I do with the courses I'm building. And that's why you're not going to see a course in there that's $4,000. It's never going to happen. In fact, you're not going to see a course in there that's $1,000. You're not going to probably ever see a course that's $500. If I have $500 worth of information, I'm probably going to make 10 $50 courses. And you can pick and choose the ones you actually want if you don't want everything so that you don't have to pay for everything to get the couple things that you really want in your life. And if, if I make stuff and people aren't interested in it, then I did it wrong. And if you can help a lot of people, you should be able to get everything you want in life. So that's my little extra advice for you today. As you're building your businesses, as you're building your lives, as you're building communities, always ask yourself what you can do for the people that you serve. Always ask that. And always let that be something that calls on you to do more than you've already done. With that, I hope you enjoyed today's show. We'll round up the week of new shows today. Remember, tomorrow, Friday, will be Friday Flashback. We'll have a great episode from the interview archives. It'll be, I don't remember exactly what it is, tomorrow, it'll be something from 2010, 14 years ago, In that vast well of knowledge that we have in the archives that we're bringing forward, where that gives me more time to spend. Uh working on things like these projects and all so that I can do more for you, just like I promised you I would when I started doing this early la- or late last year. Take care, guys, and I will catch you on Monday with a brand-new episode, and don't miss tomorrow's flashback. Are they going to bail you out or
1: just run you around? They said you should have a house the American way. A
5: dollar down, a dollar a month, and you never have
3: to pay. There's a better way to do this.
5: Let me show you a better way.